you want to crash a plane, well, how big a plane? That part is a little dramatic. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is the Oscar Sprint Profile movie review of Christopher Nolan's Tenant. It is finally time. It's finally here. I am also Mike, and I'll explain Mike One's absence in a moment. But first, let me welcome our guest today. He is from ColbyToldMe.com, at ColbyToldMe on social media. K-O-L-B-Y is how you spell it. He's at the uh, Colby Told Me podcast. Welcome back, Colby Mack. Yo, 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 what up? It's your boy, Colby Mack, and I'm finally back. Damn near nine months. (laughs) You're making your triumphant return to cinemas, to MMO. We had a... We had a blast with you on Ford v. Ferrari last time, so we're thrilled to get you back on this one, man. Uh, yeah, brother. It's good to be back. So we started talking Tenant this spring. Like we, we were trying to find opportunities to get you back on, and then this COVID apocalypse changes everything. Our collaboration falls into some doubt. You have to you know, focus on other things for a while. You come back wearing the 4-5. We're finally able to see Tenant here, and we can finally make this happen and look mike one's not here today so you are coming through in the clutch colby yeah man um it's man you know i keep hearing that that term that i feel like we're all just hearing way too much it's an unprecedented time and it is and it sounds cliche to continue to say but you know that that's just 2020 i think we all had an ideas for a very different year i know i damn sure did and you know having taken a complete social media and podcast break um, for damn near two months, it was much needed, yeah. and I'm glad that I'm back. I'm in a much better mental space. I found balance, and you know, at the same time, I thought that we weren't gonna get Tenet, and Christopher Nolan said, "Bump that, <laughs> you're getting it," and it just so happened <laughs> to work out. And I'm glad to that I'm back with a blockbuster to be able to talk about. Yeah, this is a triumphant return for a lot of reasons. And like I said, you're coming through in the clutch for Mike and I because Mike One had to drop out. Uh, He told the story on Facebook, so I guess I'll repeat more of it here today. But basically, Mike tore his abdominal muscle. And the scary thing was, Colby, like they thought he had appendicitis. He thought he had a hernia. And then when those tests came back, they were like, oh, my God, what else is it? I'm worried, like tumor. What the hell's wrong with this kid? It's not COVID. It's not a tumor. I'll it's say that in Arnold much. voice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're the right guy to have here. Anyway, it's a manageable injury, but he is sitting down. He can't move. He can't go to the movies. He's got a hot, uh, you know, a hot compress on there, and he's just got to deal with it and stay, you know, lay low for a little bit. So, Mike One has big feet, and uh, you got some big shoes to fill today, Colby. But uh, I think you're ready. Hey, Mike, I love you, man, and a special message from me uh, to you. When you edit this, play that backwards, and it'll make perfect sense just for you, baby. Uh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, you got the dad joking humor that I love so damn much, and uh, you're the right guy for this one today. So we're going to do what we always do. Me and Colby, Mike and I, we're going to give you guys non-spoiler section first. 
followed by a what-does-it-all-means spoiler-filled section, which will come after a spoiler-warning uh, dance musical interlude there. It's uh, from our Polish DJ, Mike One, there. And uh, he is editing this in a sick way today. So, again, thanks to Mike One for editing this. I, I, I was talking to you in the pre-show, Colby. Like, he likes spoilers. He wants to be tenant spoiled today, which is, to me, is sick. But <laughs> for him, he enjoys it. So, anyway, you're going to get spoiled, Mike One. And otherwise, nobody else is going to get spoiled for the first 30, 40 minutes as we go here. So, here is the Oscar sprint profile of Tenant. And Colby, 2020 has been the worst. I mean, you mentioned the nine months worth of just nightmare even before this whole nonsense started. But certainly these last six months has just been terrible. We've been hearing how Christopher Nolan was going to save movie theaters, how Tenant would reopen the business. What were your expectations for Tenant? Can you take us back in time a little bit to how you've been thinking about this movie and its triumphant return? Yeah, I mean... Almost two years ago, when we heard of Tenet being on the precipice, being a Christopher Nolan's next project, I, I guess that's the film bro in me. Is that like, yo, you just say Nolan's name, <laughs> sign me up. I don't care yeah. what he's doing. He could do a documentary, which I'm not a big fan of, and I will be there. Huge, huge, huge fan of what he did in his last outing, which was, goodness gracious, I don't know why I'm forgetting now. Yeah. A dunker. <laughs> dunker. Yeah, yeah, dunker at the Oscars. There. I mean, yep. I just remember the experience that I had in a theater, the sound design, just the epic scope of that film and what it did. And I felt like I wish it would have did a little bit better, you know, at the Oscars. But, you know, that's all right. Mm -hmm. um, I did not expect Tenet to be an Oscar film. I expected it to be a, a complex blockbuster, right? Mm-hmm. That I don't know how widely digestible it's. It's weird. His films are blockbusters in the sense that they can appeal to cinephiles like us, but then also appeal to general audiences in a way that not many other directors like can. You like it, it's 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 really really unique. So when this movie is coming about, and then there's this shroud of mystery that we've gotten ever since Inception. We'd like, what's the twist going to be? What, you know, what what are all the Nolanisms? The you know the the pensions for time. How he interviews in the story. Is he going to be working on this with his brother? And then you find out, no, no, no. He's directing this completely and writing this completely by himself. Left his own devices, and then <laughs> COVID says, "Hold up, we're going to upend the industry and." Everybody is going to land on one side of the aisle or the or another. Um, it was interesting to see how many different studios were trying to approach us to say, you know what, Universal, we're going to go ahead and push out Fast Nine after spending millions of dollars on early marketing a whole year. I kind of thought mm. that's what Tenant was going to do. I felt that it was so big, why risk it and just delay it? So. I'm wondering if you kind of have your answer in, in what you said, because this is kind of one of those movies that's at like the nexus of film bro and cinephile. It's not necessarily broad enough for everybody, but you know, you get your hardcore cinema loving audience and Christopher Nolan has been just adamant this like last year, even before the pandemic, he's like, we gotta have cinemas. I'm only making the biggest, the loudest, the craziest films for the biggest, loudest, craziest screens in the world. So if anybody 
could like make it his mission to save movie theaters, I just feel like he's got the cape on already, you know? He definitely does. And it seems like with everything outside of the film, it's almost as if like he's on a time crunch himself. Like, I feel like he may be the type of creator that when he's invested in something, he wants to quickly close that chapter to be able to move forward into the next thing. Because he's developed these partnerships with IMAX, with Warner Brothers, and all these other creatives. Right. And it seems like his press to really make the claim and stake that Tenet will be the one to save the theater or to kind of like to be, you know, I mean, because technically it wasn't supposed to be that. I mean, even when he was saying that Mulan was supposed to open up two weeks before Tenet, you know, in those original, you know, kind of return to theaters in July. Um, and that essentially was supposed to be a, block, a blockbuster. And that was a family, you know, like a four quadrant family film, um, you know, for, you know, for Disney. Um, so it was interesting that he like that was kind of like his stance. And even now things have changed when you had the film open up internationally. Before the States, that was, I did not expect that to happen. So I wonder if he is on a time crunch because I just don't know what, like, what does he have to lose pushing this to next July? Yeah. At, at the same time, it might be, you know, his thinking to say, what does the industry have to lose? And I came out of this movie theater experience and I, I know we're going to get into that in a minute, but saying like, this is a movie that must be seen in theaters and I, I come away uh, sold on Christopher Nolan's vision for what a movie theater experience could be and, and for why we have to have that experience of his story in a movie theater. So, Absolutely. again, he's like wearing that cape here. He knows he has the goods. And I, I think in what you said, like he knows that he doesn't want this long, you know, at an at arm's glance IP Right. This property that, you know, is going to be serialized throughout all of, you know, the rest of time, even like a Mulan's not that. But, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't want an MCU movie reopening cinemas. He wants his original property. And I, I just think that's some balls. And that's that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of confidence in what he's doing here. And, you know, we'll get into it if that's hubris or not. But, you know, he's doing this movie with his his wife and his longtime business partner, producer, Emma Thomas. You said you were a huge fan. You know, what kind of Nolan fan are you? You love all of his movies. You love some more than others. Well, I mean, I'll say this. Two of his films are in my top, you know, 20 films of all time with Inception and The Dark Knight. Um, Excellent. So it, it's in that's a, I feel like that's a very film bro answer to kind of give. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, if you look Sorry. at my top, if you look at my top 20, I'm also going to have other like, you know, I have some Spielberg films in there. I'm going to have some, uh, you know, a Zack Snyder film in there and stuff like that. So it, it, but you know what? I like what I like. I like that this man speaks my movie language and all of his mm. films are big on spectacle. They're big on action. I think that they know how to operate in the small spaces too. Um, they incorporate movie stars, which I love. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love a good indie, but also what drew me to the movie theater growing up was seeing these movie stars that kept me always coming back. So I love Nolan. I, I love most of his films. There's, really, there's not a bad film that he's ever done. Um, and keep in mind, this man's filmography is still relatively small compared to his, like, you know, his contemporaries in the field. So I think it's really interesting that I, 
growing up didn't get a chance to really kind of like grow up with a Spielberg, grow up with a Scorsese, mm-hmm. even grow up with, you know, a Tarantino because I was much younger. Now me and like my movie loving tastes that are a bit more refined, I have a man who, you know, granted, you know, first movie I ever remember watching it was with Momentum. And then I grew up with, you know, um, the prestige and with the, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy. So that's been great being in a place to really appreciate his films and seeing how he's matured along too so I, I i think that's what appeals to me most about him i can't agree more like he's become our guy every one of his movies has been a movie event for us growing up even before we started doing podcasts and becoming film critics mm-hmm. like i saw the dark knight five times in theaters i had to write high school and college papers on memento and then you know it was like a huge thing when all my friends and i we went and we saw you know batman begins or insomnia you know those movies every, every one of them was like this thing to do mm-hmm. because it was a christopher nolan film so yeah he we've we've grown up with him and we've matured our art cinematic tastes have matured with him so i think that's definitely going to color our review today because like we want a movie that's super engaging that's that's tough to tackle in and, many ways, and, and I think that he gives us that. You're right, man. And, and if, you know what? I think that's okay. Sometimes the echo chamber, as I return back to film Twitter, is that mm. people have kind of staked where they are in regards to their bio, their bias with Nolan, and I feel absolutely okay saying like Nolan is like my Spielberg. I mean, when people yeah. talk, the reverence that they have for you know um, uh, for Indiana Jones and for Jurassic Park. It's kind of like the way that I think about Inception and I think about The Dark Knight. Like, those are just special moments for me early on, you know, in building my cinematic, you know, love taste and stuff like that. So, and I wish that that previous generation can kind of get that. There there seems to be a lot of folks that are kind of turned off by the affections that a lot of folks have towards Christopher Nolan. And and I I don't understand why. Anybody who climbs the mountain, you know, I guess people try to knock him off, right? And then, like you said, you know, the film bros love him as much as the cinephiles. So (laughs) there's kind of, you know, a clash there as well. But I'm with you on all of that. So I guess we can kick things off here kind of talking about our movie-going experiences. You had an interesting one getting back to cinemas with Tenant. So what's your story? It was interesting, like... I got my tickets early. Um, I got a little mm-hmm. inside track to when the tickets were going to be made available because they were only made available, like, I want to say, like, a little over a week before um, that early release. And to release it on a Monday, what a weird, mm-hmm. weird choice stateside. Um, <laughs> and then also, I mean, just knowing that this is releasing regardless that there's no New York, there's no L.A. And right. I'm here in Atlanta, a hotbed of COVID cases, but... I'm operating very differently than a lot of the folks in our field. Um, I was never scared away by the health Mm -hmm. concerns to COVID. I knew that when it was opening, I was going to be there. But also, I understand that like my personal choice is also about public accountability, too. And the way Mm. that I operate, the theater that I go to, that's what made me able to like, all right, I'm going to make this decision. Typically when I watch a movie, ain't but 10 to 15 people in that theater anyway. (laughs) And we're already (laughs) naturally social distanced. Um, I know the workers at my theater. I know how they go. I know that they're one of the few AMCs that do really, really well with their cleanliness. And AMC and Regal and all the others... They are going to go out of their way above and beyond to ensure that there's no spike that they can have related to the reopening of theaters the best that they can because they don't want to be shut down and put out of business forever. So um, leaning on that 
man, I was comfortable. Um, I was really excited to get to my seat in Dolby. Hashtag Kobe does Dolby. Yes. I'll tell you this. I was a little put off back that I didn't have my 22 or 23 minutes of, of trailers. <laughs> they were like 10, 12, <laughs> and the movie started, so it kind of felt weird. I'm like, oh, we're, we're starting up. All right. Got that little Dune teaser. And then mm-hmm. here we are, man. Um, I mean, from the opening of the film to the ending of the film, everything that I expected to get, I got. I got a whole lot more. And... I'm not going to lie and say that I wasn't confused. There was definitely many parts of the film in which I was confused. But honestly, I didn't care. I go to the theaters for a cinematic experience. And there's nothing that I can knock about my experience in this theater watching this movie. And the time to be able to reflect on it was great. The deep dives that I've done with it in YouTube essays and analysis has been really, really good too. And there's only a handful of directors who I believe had that leash that we give an allowance to do that. Um, and it also depends on the type of film too. Um, I would never have, like, like, I dare Josh Boone to be like, oh, I'm going to give you this stinker with New Mutants. No, the hell you're not, bro. <laughs> you will not do this No, at he all. did not. <laughs> you know, so like... Um, I'm high on it, but at the same time, it's like, it's weird. I I have this internal battle between like me as a spectator and just an audience member enjoying this film as a fan. And then my critical lens and my film critic hat. And sometimes I feel at odds because I am aware of the things that people I think have credence to the difficulties that they had with the film. And, um, Mm -hmm. it's tough, but I, I, I'm definitely, I'm high on this one. So I agree. Like the first watch, I was taken aback by how you know confusing it could get. But the goods are still there. Like he still has the spectacle. He still has the immersive experience with all the visuals and all the visual effects, the practical ones, with all the sound coming at you, with these characters that you're rooting so gosh darn hard for. And then, you know, the, the finale and, and to kick it off, to send you out of that theater, just thinking about so much and having to watch 20 YouTube videos and for me I had to go back the next night and and Colby I'm not gonna lie to you and I I know people are out there they're scared of COVID for good reason Mm -hmm. that second watch me risking going back and look Connecticut numbers are the best in the country so I'm really not taking the risk that other people are so I understand if people are not going to the theaters for this one yet I get it the second watch of Tenant was cinematic bliss Mm. I've never been that content and happy watching a movie before maybe it's just the fact that i haven't been for six months uh and like the first time i saw the tenant trailer i said this on our new mutants pod the tenant trailer opened up new mutants for me i teared up dude i couldn't help it i was just like i was so happy to be back in the movie theaters and then actually a couple nights later to see tenant for the first time and then to see it again it just was like it was like being back home, and now everybody goes out and gets COVID because of me, because of my big, <laughs> big speech there, my big Independence Day speech. Look, understand the risks. I mean, for my Cinemark theaters, they're pumping different kinds of air in, or they have fans, or they have windows open. I read all about that. There's only one showing per theater at my Cinemark, Interesting. which I really liked. Okay. Well, yeah, it made sense. So it's like I'm the only person sitting in that seat that day. So I felt a little safer, you know, the, the coming back the next day, knowing that they would have cleaned it. So basically I was put at ease and so far no symptoms. So, you know, fingers crossed. Hey, there we go. Look, 
we know the stakes. There's been about 10 articles dropping today about how the tenant box office is going to like be a domino effect for Wonder Woman and all these other movies that are going to try and open this fall. Here's the first number we got. The movie was projected to make $25 million internationally, and it made 53 over this past weekend. So it had double the, more than double the projections. Uh, I've seen a $20 million projection in the U.S., minus all of those big markets, as you mentioned. So I, I guess i got to ask you, how do you think Warner, Brother played, Warner Brothers played this out? I mean, do you see Tenant making money over the long haul with like a full five, six weeks of good box, box off? Because usually it's like your first three weeks. But do you think that's going to be more spread out? Do you think they're going to get the numbers that they always wanted? Man, that's that's the part that is really throwing me for a loop. Um, I really love tackling right. the, the receipts of the box office at the end of the weekend. And that kind of gives me an idea. Um, even as a film critic, to just what the audience reception was, was, you know, you know, if you kind of parse out the, you know, the reviews and stuff like that, right? Um, how many people went to go mm-hmm. see this thing, right? And it's interesting that, all right, they already said, you know what, we're not going to go and do the full push out for a year. We want to come out in 2020, even knowing that, you, you know, your 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 audience is going to be cut in half at a minimum. I mean, most theaters in most states, there's no they're, like they're not even at fifty percent. You're talking about forty percent right. max uh, for your mm-hmm. auditoriums, right? So you already know that you are just out that much from what a traditional opening weekend. I mean, I think that the the benchmark for a blockbuster to just be somewhat relatively successful in its opening weekend is a hundred million. Like you know for a fact, if you get to that hundred million, then that's saying something, right? Um, sure. We're not expecting that now. And the global figure, like, man, if they would have had like a worldwide global box office debut of like 250 million, they would have been eaten well. I think the production budget was like, what, a couple hundred million? You know, yeah, all- and you had the marketing to that. And it's pro- it probably needs to make a half a billion yeah. at the end of the day, at least. And, right? you would, and you would hope that that's like, at the end of the day, can we get a billion? Like, that would be absolutely great, right? Um, with the climate, I think that they must they must be absolutely okay with knowing that they're not going to hit that mark. They could have went the PVOD route like they did with a couple of their other titles. Um, but obviously with Nolan, they chose not to. Um, I think New Mutants last weekend did like $9 million. I would hope mm-hmm. that this can at least triple that. I, I really do believe $30 million will be a good sign. And this has no competition for the next month until Wonder Woman. Right. I think it's got an opportunity yeah. to really hold over well. I'm hoping it can it can make the long play, like you said, and it could get close to that number that it needs. Because I think when this movie's available to everybody, everybody's kind of gonna see it. And you know the reviews are good: 69 Metascore, 78% Rotten Tomatoes, eight out of ten from 56,000 reviews on IMDb. Audience score: 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. I kind of think people are underrating this movie a little bit. Where where do you stand on the critical reviews? Yeah, I think so as well. I think that there's some critics, like I said, if, if they if they have not fully like content you know contended with their 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 bias with Nolan, um, there's mm. some folks that I think felt a little put off by the confusion or the convoluted plot, as of what I've heard a lot. Um, that they're just kind of like they're they're, they're making this a little bit lower. Um, but I'll say this. I mean. I think this is the type of film that over time is going to grow more and more on folks. I think its cleverness can be seen as like convoluted, 
But when you really look at it, like, wow, there's some really unique things there. And I think that that's going to garner more kind of like, you know, praise over time. So I see that score um, as traditionally you see score start out high and then going down. I feel like this is starting out in the middle and it's going to go up. From your lips to God's ears on that, I, I I totally agree. Like I don't understand how you know we can have these little movies that are 85s on Metacritic and this one's a 69. Are you kidding me with the quantity of greatness you get here? So I'm going to be very high on this movie and some someone else I'm really high on here. And we just can't go any further without talking about John David Washington. My man, he broke out. Yeah, he broke out in Spike Lee's Black Klansman. He got a start. And HBO's Ballers, uh, he's done some excellent work playing, you know, cops and monsters and men, the old man and the gun. You know, what do you think of Denzel's son here, John David, here in Tenet? This guy has really impressed me. Um, hmm. I didn't have a lot of hope for him after what i seen him in Ballers. And he it's interesting because he really tried to navigate his professional career out as much as he can from his father's shadow and that shadow looms large he's probably oh, the yeah. most recognizable african american actor in the history of african american actors um and that's Definitely. that's tough shoes to fill and he's a ringer for his dad so like it's it's really really <laughs> tough that's why he wants to keep that beard on he's like i cannot look like this joker i need either a mustache <laughs> or a beard or this guy's got me and you can see it in him. Like, it's so weird. And, um, you know, you'll shout out to Mount Vernon, New York, you know, uh, where Denzel was born. My family knows his family. I feel that little personal connection. And I can feel the New York and John David's performance as well. And just seeing him being able to grow and kind of coming into his own movie stardom, it's stuff like that that fascinates me. Because I think when an actor can be able to embrace his outside persona and how that adds to the way that he approaches films, I think is remarkable. Um, I think that that is another element to what really make actors so great and why I love being in this community as a performer, right? Um, I aspire mm-hmm. to be like that. And seeing what this man can do physically, seeing what he can be able to do with his reaction, what he can be able to do you know, with his voice. One, this man ain't six foot, right? It, you right. know how hard it is for a black... Yo, okay, I <laughs> I graduated high school in 2005, moved out to LA to be an actor, all right? And I had some marginal mm-hmm. success. But the biggest thing that was holding me back is I was 5'7 at the time, okay? Um, most of the time in that part of Hollywood 15 years ago, yeah, I need to be six foot and I need to be muscular. And I'm 5'7 and 200 pounds. There's not a lot of roles for me. So the fact that this man that's probably 5'9 and a half like <laughs> in lifts um says a lot and standing next to a giant in elizabeth Debecky, that says a lot and i'm so curious to what christopher nolan saw because like when it, when i when i heard that i was like yo whoa whoa christopher nolan's gonna cast john david watch as the lead in this film that's not leonardo dicaprio that's not christian bale it shocked me yo he's think of think of the people that he's worked with hugh jackman like it, it is it, i mean don't get me wrong i guess you know Tom Hardy is short as well, but like, it's just, it's so interesting. And I think it was great for him to be able to take this leading role. And I'll tell you this, yo, he's my second favorite James Bond character ever. The protagonist. (laughs) 
he might be my first. I, I've never been as intrigued with a super spy because usually, you know, the super spy is either a meathead idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, we've just do, done this whole Bond series. So, you know, the Connery character is all style and he's funny yep. or whatever. And he's an asshole, too. But you got the meathead guy and then you got the crazy guy. Daniel Craig's perhaps the most complicated thus far. Mm-hmm. But John David Washington, he is like an Easter egg video all to himself. Like you're talking about... <laughs> You're talking about poise. Yep. You're talking about the glimpses he he gives in this movie. You're talking about the walk that he has, the poker face he's got to put on display, and then the knowledge as an actor, the knowledge that everybody's going to be watching this movie for plot possibilities and for those Easter eggs, as I mentioned. They're going to be watching this movie two and three times, and they got to get a different experience every time. And he's got to, you know, kind of, you know, let the gloss get off of the veneer. There, mm-hmm. I, I am blown away by all the little nuances of this performance. And then, I mean, this guy is the action hero oh my of the new millennium. I mean, he was an NFL running back. Mm-hmm. He has the ability. I mean, he's a professional athlete. So him running up those stairs is probably something he did running up stadiums every training day of his mm-hmm. life, right? So those knees go high. Those knees just naturally go high. That man can run like the best. And then he's got these fight scenes oh my gosh. where he's owning it. To the point where I haven't seen anything like this since Tom Cruise fought the big mustache in that bathroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the best fight scene in the kitchen since the bathroom in, in Mission Impossible. Did it Fall not out. transport you back to what his dad did in the, in the Equalizer? I'm just like, I didn't know oh. that he had it in him. <laughs> I really, really didn't. And I did not. Okay, one, two years ago, I didn't. no, no one knew what Tenet was. I damn sure didn't know that Tenet was going to be a spy movie. No clue. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I had no idea probably up until a week before the movie came out. And then now sure. to know that it's a spy sci-fi movie, it, it, like we knew the time was going to be incorporated. I had no idea how. Like I got like right. adjustment bureau vibes. So with all of those different elements, and then knowing that John David Washington was going to be at the center of it, I just didn't know how it would work. And now that I've seen the movie one point five times, I plan on seeing it probably seven point five times. You know, all together, <laughs> I'm like, I want to see more because I keep. I feel like there's more and more that I'm going to continue to keep seeing. And I will say. Performance-wise, JDW, I had him at like a seven when I first watched right. the movie. I bumped him up to an eight in my half viewing that I just recently got out of. I will say there is something still a little bit, and I can't tell if it's him or if it's a direction. There feels something a little bit immature about some of his line delivery. And as an okay. actor, there's ways that he is delivering a line. And it, there's something about it that just feels off and I, I i really 100% can't put my finger on it and it's 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 really not, not a slight it's just like a little it's a little thing and, and i think that's where if i were to compare him to like a to what daniel craig does inside of casino royale or specter right daniel craig is always at a 10 in regards to making me believe that he is a super spy JDW, there's something about some of his line delivery where he flexes back and forth because of his charisma, where it's like, I don't know if he's a spy. He's playing it almost too cool as if he's like Eddie Murphy in a spy film. 
I think he's trying to play the situation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's trying to test. He's trying to test the situation, and we know that from the plot, mm-hmm. as we'll get into in spoilers in a few minutes. But I do think he's putting on a poker face and he's throwing out feelers because he doesn't know who to trust. The whole movie. This is the per, you know perhaps the most vulnerable super spy that we've ever seen because he doesn't even know the the villainy that he's facing and what they're after and what they're up to at least until you know almost the sixty percent point. So. I don't know. I'm holding out hope mm-hmm. that film Twitter is going to come around on this particular performance because I just saw I saw so much more in that second viewing, and I I really want film Twitter to look at this more because, dude, we've been through the ringer in 2020. At the end of it all, I want the father son double nomination in best actor, Ooh. and I want John David. I want Denzel for Macbeth. Like, give me Macbeth at the end of the year just oh, for this. <laughs> I just want it. I just want it, and you have to you know cap off the terrible. 2020 with that please that i mean hey we get we got a long way to go what with uh, oscars qualifications up until what february right february. february we got a lot of time but we don't got as many movies and this movie's gotta grow on people i think at the end of the day uh let's talk about the rest of the ensemble real quick we're gonna get into more in spoilers do you have an mvp perhaps in terms of the rest of the group robert pattinson elizabeth debicki kenneth branagh they're the main three but you also got aaron taylor johnson clemens pose uh himesh patel michael kane with his mouthful martin donovan (laughs) (laughs) and dimple uh kapadia do you have a scene stealer amongst those amongst that big group there I would say, like, there's something that Kenneth Branagh... One, like, I knew that Kenneth Branagh was in this movie. I did not know that he was playing Satan. Like, I had no clue. I was like, wait, that's Kenneth Branagh? Hold up. <laughs> when did that's this a happen? lot of close-up. It really, really yeah. was. Like, he... I, I felt that he really transformed himself into a non-mustache-having, mustache-twirling villain like we would get from a super mm. spy movie. Um, and I just thought that he was great. The biggest thing that I give to a director is making me believe the world in which these characters are in. And I believe that right. that character was in this world. And then I think of like all the other elements you get in a spy film. And I'm like, okay, there's the really big bad guy. There's these other small guys you got to get through to get to the big bad guy. And then we're going to use the bad guy's, you know, wife as a, you know, as a, a way to be able to get through them. And so like, oh, that all makes sense. Like it, it completely makes sense. And I just believed what Kenneth Branagh was doing. Um, but I will say, it was refreshing to see our Pats in a role like this because yeah. <laughs> between what we got in 2019 <laughs> with The Lighthouse <laughs> and with High Life, I'm just like, bro, I respect your hustle. I respect your gangster. But <laughs> the films that you pick, <laughs> I, I, I still don't know what I watched in High Life. And I respect... Right what lighthouse was doing okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and if anybody has a problem with hearing things in this chris Nolan movie keep that same energy for the lighthouse because i couldn't understand anything that was being said in that film but okay that's fine um but yeah what he did in high life i i still don't get uh, so it was nice seeing him in a more kind of like debonair role um I, there was something that was like really intriguing about him and then as the movie goes along and you're seeing him like I swear that people are going to shit on this script. And I think the script is very, very clever. Um, And I think that once you kind of start peeling back the lever, the lever, the layers. Oh yeah. You're like, Oh, Oh. And there's so much in his performance that is so (laughs) subtle and there's so much nuance. And I'm like, wow. Um, Yeah. I I think, I think, yo, shout out to Himesh Patel. I didn't know that he could do an American accent like that. Like, (laughs) I didn't even know why, like, why would you ask Himesh Patel 
to do that. But it worked. It worked for me. I liked it. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think, again, like this entire cast is trying to, you know, play the poker face thing. Here's what I'm wondering, though. How many extra meetings did Christopher Nolan have to take? Like, how many lunches did he have to have with cast members getting the same phone call from somebody's agent saying, look, you know, Himesh needs to sit down and you need to explain this plot to him. <laughs> so he has a clue. That must have been like every day oh for like gosh. two months from Christopher Nolan. And I guess on that note, I'm with you on all the performances. I also love Debicki. We'll get She's into awesome. more with her yeah. in spoilers. But all right, this script. How confusing was it to you? Did it did it take away from some of the enjoyment? I know we've been talking about script thoughts throughout here. I like again, once I understood it, my second watch it was glorious, but you know, you you're kind of at the midway point here. Where are you at with this script? The way that I approach a film is a little bit different than some. Like for a lot of folks, if the script doesn't work, it's like the film can never mm-hmm. get above like a 5 out of 10, right? And right. I just don't operate that way because I think that like films, especially like in a, in a theatrical presentation, are so much based off of what we convince the audience to be able to feel. Um, I will mm-hmm. say that when Nolan's films at large, I don't know if he's as much concentrated on getting an emotional connection as opposed to getting you transfixed on the cinematic experience and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. And I think that there's mm-hmm. so much spectacle, huge scope and action to this that those emotional elements to the script that may not be as polished as like either other of his previous works or just other films in general. Like I don't think that he set out to write this film and have it be up for a best original screenplay Oscar. I don't think that. Right. Um, right. Because there, he definitely would have paid more attention into fully fleshing out arcs for each and every one of the characters that we spend a bulk of the time with. Right. Um, but the script, honestly, I was never like it, it never it never tuned me out. I was never just like, oh, you know what? I don't buy that. And there's certain movies you watch which just like, nope, nope, nope. And it could have been what's the, what's the young lady's character? Uh, she was from the from the Harry Potter films. That's the only thing I know her from. <laughs> Clemence Pose, yeah, in Bruges too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much she says, "Don't try to understand it, just <laughs> feel it." And I'm like, okay, so that's a wink from Nolan. Or maybe he, maybe True. it wasn't a week at all. But if it was, like, it's so smart. It's so, like, because he, he knows he's kind of in on the joke. And honestly, from there, it's asking permission from the audience just to say, yo, there's some theoretical, you know, science fiction at play here. Just know that as long as these characters believe that this world can happen this way, then I mm-hmm. get permission to be able to believe it as well. And once I was at that point, and gladly that happened pretty early on in the film, I'm like, all right, great. This is now, I moved it into like a, you know, my little mini review. This is like a superhero movie. There's a lot right. of physics things that are happening here that I cannot fully understand, but I just need to make sure that these characters be able to see it that way and sell it to me. And they always did a great job at selling me on that. So um, it did not like, it, 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 didn't, it didn't tune me out at all. And I really appreciated it. See, I, I'm with you. I had some frustration at, during that first watch, especially when Michael Caine is just with the mouthful. Like, he's chewing French fries that entire scene <laughs> where we're trying to learn about the exposition at a pivotal point. Mm-hmm. And the exposition scenes might be more important than the actual character scenes of this movie. Oh, yeah. They're so important. So folks out there who haven't seen this movie yet, do not tune out for the exposition. If you hear a speech coming on, it is that important. You need 
need to, to pay attention and it, it matters. But like you said, even if you don't pay attention, even if you're kind of programmed to tune out those scenes, you feel this movie in your bones, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I walked away that first time and I was like, I don't know if I get any of this, but I know I liked it. I know I was immersed. I know he put brought me on this journey and I'm like just this emotional beast reacting to this movie, loving it, loving the music, lo- mm-hmm. loving the whole composition. And I guess, you know, we can transition to the last, you know, uh, order of business here before we get into spoilers. The production values of this movie I haven't seen something like this, this immersive, this all-consuming, since maybe Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. Like, this movie, again, it's the perfect movie to reopen cinemas with because it is proof that you need this movie in cinemas. Imagine imagine watching this on a 6.5-inch iPhone. Ugh. I mean... Ugh. It just breaks my heart. I mean, and and that's the thing thing right there. You just... You've taken film classes. I've been to film school. Something like it's. Mm-hmm. They don't teach you like those. They don't teach you those those elements to like to be seen on. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some really impressive like you know at home theaters. Like I, I, I've right. seen them, and I've got a 70 inch, and I've got a 60 inch in one room, and it sounds great, but it doesn't sound like a Dolby Auditorium. It doesn't sound like no. IMAX, or you know, like it. It just it doesn't. And I, I'm telling you, man, like this was. I, I thought that something was wrong. I called up. I called up my boy Raul. I was like, hey, um, your theater, did you have any issues with the sound? It's like, is it me or was it just like, I felt like this is the loudest movie I've ever watched. Um, loudest movie ever. I felt, honestly, um, <laughs> I felt like <laughs> I felt like the, my theater was trying to penetrate me. I, I, I was like, yo, <laughs> I don't know. This Dolby is rocking. Like, it is literally like just touching on like p- parts of my body. I'm like, what is going on? Um, I felt everything. <laughs> And the soundtrack, I mean, featuring the soundtrack in that volume with the seat rumbling behind you. I mean, I'm not a huge Travis Scott fan, but like that song, The Plan, Mm -hmm. the the opening of that song is like the drum beat. That's the the heartbeat. I mean, Nolan at this point, he loves his scores to be like staccato, like heartbeat, drum beat. That was the whole Dunkirk score. And you got Ludwig Ludwig, uh, Garanson from Black Panther, who won the Oscar for that, doing the score for this and you get the synth techno stuff Mm -hmm. i've never heard a score that impacted me as much as this one did and yeah i think the sound mix a lot of people have criticisms for that will that doom its chances at the oscars at the end of the day maybe but dude if this score is not nominated i'm gonna be furious oh absolutely it definitely deserves a nomination and like i i don't think i connected to the sound of this movie emotionally like let's say i did with like um if beale street could talk um, but definitely right. on like an experience level into what it was adding to me into feeling like I was inside of this world. That's where yeah. like, that's where I felt like it achieved most of that. It's like psychosomatic, right? Mm. It's like this undercurrent yes. and it just works on you. You don't even know what's working on you. And then you're just like, you forget everything else. Like it is an immersive experience and, and only guys like Nolan can do it these days. But part of that is also the visuals. I mean, the cinematography from from Hoyt uh, Van Hoytema, I'm probably mispronouncing his word. The VFX team is huge, and the v, if the VFX doesn't win with all these practical effects, never mind getting nominated. If these visual effects don't win, I'm going to be just enraged because there, there, there's th- people going backwards, there's people going forwards, there's buildings blowing up twice. Colby, I need to see these VFX I, need to win. I need to see like like ten hours of behind the scenes footage on how you can comp- like yes. just one, one from a filmmaking standpoint. One, how do you compose this type of script? Right. Right. Two, how do you edit this movie? 
<laughs> How do you shoot? Like, he got Jennifer Lame, Colby. Jennifer Lame did Hereditary, Manchester by the Sea, Francis Ha. She is his editor here. He did not get an action movie editor even, and she just brilliantly put this whole, whole thing together. Again, everybody going backwards and forwards in one scene, in one battle. The tricks on display. Oh, my gosh. Like, we went to film school, and we had to pull off a couple time tricks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, back to the 1900s, those same tricks they teach you, like, at the first week of film yeah. school. We pulled those off. This is, like, that times 100,000, and she's able to cut this thing together. It's crazy. I remember in college shooting a film called Retribution. Um, it was directed <laughs> by Roel, and I starred in it, and we shot the entire film backwards, right? Nice. And it was interesting because then when it plays out, like it shows a different different perspective. Like I was, I appeared at the beginning of the film as a protagonist. Come to find out that the man who's seeking retribution is actually, you know, the one in which I was the antagonist and I killed his girlfriend, right? And oh my God. just the challenge of of doing that, where we're shooting the entire film backwards, you know, show from this different perspective. But then in this film, you're shooting not only you're not shooting the film backwards, but you're having segments of the film where narratively. You have multiple characters that are going through, forward, and backward in time, like times two. And it, it's, you know, it hurts your head when you talk about time. <laughs> it's, it's. Yeah. I, I really, I really want the academy to respect the amount of hard work that had to be like done to make this film happen, and just how. Right. I don't want to say it's done. It's not. It's not that it's not executed perfectly. Like it's just. I can't, I can't name another film that took this similar approach and pulled off what this did. I'm sure we're going to get making of featurettes that put this on the level of a 1917 of a first man. And if those movies are going to go to the Oscars and win a bunch of awards, Mad Max Fury Road mm-hmm. is a little flashier than this, I would yeah. say. But I think when people really study this, especially in those branches, they're going to look at the VFX, cinematography, editing, and those are at least going to get nominated. The sound effects, maybe not. The score better damn well be. Uh, so to give people an Oscar lens, that's my undercard. I think this movie gets you know shows up a bunch to, in terms of the big you know nominations though do you see any anybody from the cast because Debicki's a possibility mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh for supporting actor you know John David Washington you know Nolan for director obviously best picture the screenplay you kind of said no before what do you see do you see this just being an undercard uh, movie nominated do you see some more nominations later on I see definitely more text than any of like the, mm-hmm. the, the, the bigger ones. Um, I mean, I would love, love, love for Nolan to get the respect mm-hmm. that is duly deserved in regards to a nomination for directing because like if somebody put it to me where like I was not impressed with 1917, just the story. It's a very simple story, right? right? But very simple. everything that was done technically was marvelous. The scope of this is marvelous of this film. And a direct, like mm-hmm. a director's job, is to paint the picture of what we want the audience to see, right? And I, I, this is the best looking movie that I've seen the entire year. So, with that regard, he's a front runner for me directorially. I've got him, I've got Spike, but then I also Good. look at what's on, like what's coming up. And that's going to be tough, you know. We've got <laughs> yeah. Mank, we've got you know the Trial of Chicago Seven, like. It's going to be interesting, and this is a longer field to be able to kind of hold off some of your, you know, so your competition and stuff like that. Um, so right now I have them like in my top five uh, of the year right. directorially. Um, is this a best picture film? 
It's tough, right? It's tough only because it's like I know I know what the academy wants to wants it right. to be representatively, right? Um, and I don't know if the film, just based on its initial reception, is that. Mike said it in our last episode on uh, the Charlie Kaufman film. I'm thinking of ending things. He's like, the Academy doesn't want to work as hard as some of these filmmakers need them to work to nominate their films. Like, you have to watch the Charlie Kaufman film twice. You probably have to watch the Christopher Nolan film twice here Mm -hmm. before you can appreciate all of its grandeur and forgive some of its sins, Mm -hmm. like you're saying. And like, like I've been saying throughout this, like I, you know, the frustration at the end of the first watch or the mixed feelings, those are overcome once you you know watch the 20 youtube videos <laughs> so maybe that's what people should do before the spoiler section here as we get into it but it's it you know we always end these non-spoiler sections with watch or don't this is definitely a watch for Absolutely. the both of us right so i guess you know i think a lot of people out there and we respect your decision you're not going to the theaters quite yet you might wait for this to come to video or wait for your numbers to go down so colby make sure you tell our mmoers where to find you so let's give you a little you know preemptive send-off here before we get into spoilers where can they find you on the internet remind the remind the people here yeah you could find your boy on all the socials at colby told me on twitter and instagram when i'm in the mood to write you could check out my website at colby and listen to my podcast the colby told me podcast so when they ask you where you heard it from you tell them colby told me spoilers ahead this is a spoiler warning spoilers This is a spoiler section for our review of Tenant. This is where you want to be if you've already seen the movie or if you don't mind spoilers and we've hyped you up so much that you cannot wait to listen to what we have in store. This is all spoilers all the time. I'm here with Colby Mack of ColbyToldMe.com and we have to get into it. I think... I've rewritten this spoiler section, Colby, like 10 different times. I think I'm going to focus on the juiciest stuff, the craziest stuff. I think you're with me on this. Absolutely. All right. So I will orient the people a little bit here and there. And basically, guys, this is a James Bond movie crossed with a time travel movie. We have John David Washington's future self, and I'm calling him by his stage name, his real name, because he doesn't really have a name in this other than the protagonist. Do you think that's a cool name, Colby? Do you think that's a a badass name? Do you think that's a stupid name? I had no idea it was his name to begin with um, (laughs) until, like, as I'm writing my review, I'm like, yo, what the hell is this dude's name? Hold up. I go to IMDb. He's credited as the protagonist now. I don't know if he doesn't have a name and, like, the, the people that I interviewed was like, hey, yo, Chris, so, like, is there a name? No, there's not a name. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, we're just going to put it as the protagonist. I'm still unsure. <laughs> but it is kind of cool now that it's the protagonist. Because the way that JDW references it himself in the film is yes. always, no, I'm the protagonist. And I'm like. It's built up, it right? It really it's is. It's built up in all the language of the <laughs> spy shit. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the protagonist's 
future self, guys, is who founds Tenant. The Tenant is the organization that's basically trying to stop a supervillain, Kenneth Branagh, who wants the end, who wants to end the world with a doomsday device. So you got again, you got a Bond film, you got a time travel film, and they're fucking here. They have an offspring. This is Tenant. Now. John David Washington goes through this entire movie and his future self recruits his former self. And this is the reveal at the end of the film. Colby, how did you react to this? I was just giddy. I got to tell you, um, I stated in the (laughs) non-spoiler section how some of Christopher Nolan's films don't work in me as emotionally as what, you know, um, as much as I would like because there's so much spectacle. There's so many players. Um, But what JDW does in dealing with this reveal, how he wells up with emotion, I immediately connect with the no-name protagonist, right? And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. this man has created a friend that he's been on this mission with completely unknown to him about what his role in this, and one, he's the perfect soldier. He's the perfect spy because he's going along with everything, right? And it's just like, it completely just hits him, and he's like floored. And then... He's floored because he knows what's going to happen next for Neil. And it, 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 yeah. when, I, when, when, I, when that hit me, I was like in my chair oh. just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so <laughs> satisfying. I, I, Nolan hasn't been that satisfying maybe since the end of Memento, I would say. You know, even The Dark Knight wasn't as good of a send-off as that. But this is what they teach you in screenwriting class, right? They mm-hmm. teach you to promise another story and not only did with that one revelation did he promise another story he promised 50 other stories because now we know how complex this is we Mm -hmm. know how many anecdote stories that are told throughout this now we want to see the protagonist you know make ensure that this plot goes the way it's supposed to go right we could we can have 10 other movies i mean this is but this is so easily serialized like you can yeah if you want to i can easily see another you know, if you 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 want a, a whole separate Nolan trilogy dealing with Tenet, like it, it's so achievable. And when you're dealing with Easy. time, it gives you like there's no restraints. I mean, you just have to cleverly write it around dealing with the theory of everything and just making it work. And I, I want it so bad. Oh, me too. And, and, and folks, that's the easiest part of this. So if you're already confused, that's a problem. Because look, <laughs> we have good guys and bad guys that are both existing in the present and in the future. Like there are future bad guys recruiting, you know, the present bad guys. To make that even more complicated, there are these same good guys and bad guys. And they all seem to go and do their dirty deeds or their good deeds in the past, Colby, to get the upper hand. How did you follow this? What's your first impression of like when you realize this at the movie theater? Like we got these multiple timelines that are going back and forth. Huh? Um, <laughs> I mean, really was. One, no, kind of having an unsure footing of where I was in time yeah. was probably one of my, like, you know, definitely one of my knocks that I have with the film, right? Um, if we're looking at, like, you know, the bones of what makes a spy movie, um, it's always seeing at the bottom of your screen that time and location of things, right? Especially yes. when we have we have a ticking clock, right? Which is another penchant for Nolan. Like, things are in time because something's about to happen. Um, yes. It was hard following, it was hard knowing where I was in relation to the avatar of the film that I'm following and the protagonist, right? Okay, so at what point... 
Is he, you know, not knowing of Tenet? Where, all right, when he does know, are we like now a week later? Are we a month later? From the time that he first meets Priya, like, you know, how long does it take him to get that? So that way, when I have the inbird itself coming in, I need to know, like, in my mind, I need to know how long it takes for that person. Because the beautiful thing that I learned about in this, and I love how with every time travel movie, there's something kind of new about it. You don't right. just skip to the time. You actually have to take, you have to walk to get there. And I was like, "Wait, you have to! Holy you sh- have to spend the same amount of time yes. traveling that you that you would going forward." So, because which opens up so oh many my possibilities. Gosh, bro. By the way, it hurts my because okay, <laughs> the mad scientist. I'm gonna I'm gonna call her the mad scientist. The mad Very scientist good. who creates <laughs> who creates the technology <laughs> that essentially you know time inversion. In order right. for her, because she did not want to destroy. She either was, I mean, for whatever her reasons as to why she couldn't destroy the, the MacGuffin. <laughs> um, right. In order to get it to the past, I still had trouble trying to understand how did things get to the past? Well, that's burning question number one for me, because why didn't she just destroy it? And I guess I kind of answered this question to myself. I'll give you my theory. Mm-hmm. Basically, once she creates this algorithm, which is the doomsday device, which is basically this giant Jenga stick, right? This stupid stick that has all It looks all so the, dumb at whatever. the end. Whatever. Like, at the end of the movie, he takes it out. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> the, the fate of the world is coming down to a giant Jenga tower. Anyway, they, they split it off into three parts. But what she did after she invented this, you know, inverted... Uh, the inverse of subatomic particles, right? The movement of subatomic particles, mm-hmm. which is entropy. I, I studied some of the science, but basically she can reverse time and she invents time travel. But the when weaponized, not just when you know, when they make time machines in the turnstiles, but when weaponized, this thing could basically blow up the world. Now, once she creates it, I guess future time travel people can just go back and take it from her once she created it. So burning question number one, she can never destroy it, right? Am I right? Am I well, that's the thing. thinking like, the right way there? What is, what's done in time is done. And it, it's kind of what part, what part of time travel do you subscribe to? Is time a circle? Like is it, is it a flat circle or is it a line, right? Like when can you influence right. those pieces of time? Um, I subscribe more to that any, in, any events that influence the past create a separate and alternate timeline. Because that just makes okay. the most practical sense in my head. It seems like I think this, Pattinson. Yeah. yeah, Pattinson's with you on that. Yeah. He's a, the multiverse theory, the MCU kind of theory, and that might be playing out here too. But go ahead. Yeah, well, because I mean, they talk about it inside the film, the grandfather paradox, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's definitely it, it, it's not answered here. Well, well is it? That's a question, though. That's an, that's another burning question. And <laughs> yeah, you're getting that oh, ahead man. of me here, but it's true. Yeah, we have this grandfather paradox and the grandfather paradox basically says and it's a theme of this film so we're kind of you know getting people ready here to, to to break this down if you go back in time and kill your own grandfather is that even possible right you know if you kill your own grandfather then you wouldn't exist so how can you kill him but you know if or you can kill him and then you don't exist anymore i mean how does that work I think most of the characters of this story fall down on one side. Or they're guessing the answer is one thing, and then there's only one character who believes you destroy everything, and that's Kenneth Branagh. But I think 
you know, we have a mantra from Robert Pattinson, right, who's ultimately the mentor character, mm-hmm. who we ultimately recognize is steering the events of this movie. He's in contact with the Tenet team. He is as good as good guys get. He has been recruited by future protagonist self, John David Washington, and he is the mentor for the younger protagonist self getting him through these events and he's the one hopping through the time travel the most so he keeps saying in this movie what's happened what's happened happened and that's his mantra so he's basically saying like even if you killed your grandfather you're still going and like you said the multiverse is in full effect yeah it's it's definitely if you spend too much time (laughs) on it it can start to hurt, right? Uh, it, it does. <laughs> it, it really does. But that's also like that's the joy of dealing with this type of film. And I think it's just one of those things where you have to just give it that leash. In a time paradox film, this is just what you do. You know, it's what we answered in, you know, Star Trek movies and stuff like that. This just this just is it is what it is, right? <laughs> to quote Joe Pesci, right? It is what it right. is, right? And um yep. it, without having a concrete answer. You just got to kind of go with it. Do I believe these characters believe this is the rules in which the world works? Yes, I believe that. Um, There's definitely things that like didn't make too much. So like how far can you go back? Is there like a dial on the turnstile? And I thought like one, just calling it a turnstile was really, really cool. Like, oh, because it's like a turnstile. Like they literally, you (laughs) enter one side of it. You How did the, where'd the turnstile come from? That's what I need to know. Well, you. They invented it in the future, I guess, but the whole thing is, like, she did a terrible job sending all these, you know, pieces, you know, all across the world because they immediately find them and they basically immediately entrust that Kenneth Branagh supervillain is going to blow up their past. So I guess we got to understand the future bad guys. The future bad guys are living in a world where global warming is basically going to kill the planet. So they have to take a Hail Mary pass and see that maybe if they destroy the past via Kenneth Branagh, then they could have a future. They don't know, but that's what I'm guessing. That even the future bad guys are banking on the fact that if you kill your grandfather in the past, you're still you're still alive. You just got to change future, maybe, right? So, I guess. Um, I guess too. That's the whole thing, and that's why this is kind of fun to talk about. Anyway, we have the future bad guys employing Kenneth Branagh, and I thought that was a brilliant thing to have that flashback scene really fast even though it didn't work well Mm -hmm. like in the office after he saved his life there that was awkward yeah kenneth branagh telling the story of when he found what made him rich Mm -hmm. but he basically finds gold bars but it was important because he literally gets instructions from the future bad guys telling him what to do and where to find everything and how they can help him accomplish his evil deeds so I, i at the end of the day it was one of those exposition points where i was like this is terrible but it makes sense of it a little bit. I mean, it's kind of like what Biff gets the almanac in <laughs> Back to the Future 2, except this guy, yes, Kenneth Branagh, Sador, has full instructions on how to use it. So when we get to that right. dark timeline in Back to the Future 2, and you see Biff <laughs> attain, holy shit, Sator's Biff. Oh, <laughs> Sator's Biff. That's what we've come up with in the spoiler section of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is Mike. <laughs> Sauce Mike and Colby back. Sator is Biff. Oh, that's brilliant. Look, I did, what was another thing that threw me like into a crazy loop here is Christopher Nolan has like five acts to this film, and each act is based on one of the words of this five line. Sator Sator Square. The Sator Square. Look it up, people. The Sator Square. He's got all these palindromes. What does Nolan do? Holy shit. Nolan's the guy that's up on YouTube till 4 o'clock in the morning. 
He is. He's Mike One in a different form. Mike One is doing that every day he can. So, uh, yeah, he's totally all about that. I guess well, let's talk about the time travel inversion a little bit. What did you think of the reverse bullets? Like, were you able to follow it? Like, these scenes are shot in reverse. And basically, we got half the movie, you're following the mission forward. And then the second half of the movie, or at least let's say this point, like from the 50% point to the 79% point, they got to go back. Yeah. Which is wild and we watch these scenes again these these spectacles again going back what would you think of the turnstiles and that time manipulation you know what like once i understood what the theory of inversion was i thought it was really cool do mm-hmm. i feel like it always obeyed its rules there was times where i didn't see that right um one right. i thought inversion was like okay i'm gonna invert this metal this inanimate object to move backward through time um, but that's only based off the perspective that you have if you're moving forward to time. It was hard for me if I thought about it too long. Well, can anyone see that, right? Because there's points right. in the film when we get into the, you know, we get to the third act where we have the protagonist inverting himself and he <laughs> is moving backwards through, through time to other people's perspective looking for, right. who else can see that? Because he's clearly driving this car miles to where he's supposed where he's already been an hour before so he, do people see that dude i got another <laughs> i got another burning question here because this this is might be the burning question of all burning questions well it's not there's one more about pattinson mm-hmm. but this one's cool too i thought i saw john david washington give john david washington a passing glance in this movie, not in the once, car. but twice. In the car, yeah. I thought he looked directly he at did. the camera, which is the POV of J- uh, JDW. Correct. But he also sees him in the inversion room where the tune starts in the blue-red room. Yes. He sees him there, yes. too. So wouldn't that embolden John David Washington, knowing that he survives, knowing that he's you know seeing himself traveling through time, wouldn't that embolden him to know to trust his own instincts and to to follow this through? Because I know this is the case for Elizabeth Debicki, and I know this is the case with the turnstiles. I'm going to talk about temporal time pincers in a minute with you. But, like, Nolan does this. He has, like, a concept where he uses it in a microcosm version, in a smaller scene, and then he uses it in the overall to guide a whole sequence. He has the turnstiles, right? Once you go through this turnstile, you can see yourself on the other side getting out okay. Elizabeth Debicki's character sees herself diving into the water, getting out of her big finale scene with Kenneth Branagh. Do you think... I'm like, I'm almost convincing myself that this happened. I think John David Washington saw himself and now he knows like that he's guiding this whole experience for himself. In the retrospect, I thought that too, but Mm -hmm. as we're operating in the regular movie time, I didn't think that his character was fully aware of it. I think like he, like he had, he had an idea, but not fully committed to it. Cause I feel like we're experiencing this as the first time that he is. And what ends up happening is that we do understand that this is going to loop again. Like, it just has to, right? True. So, knowing mm-hmm. that, I wasn't even fully aware that DeBicki knew, I guess, you know, Kat, I didn't know until afterwards it happened that she knew that she was a girl jumping, diving off the boat. I think she knew 
that she was going to dive off the boat when she was heading in, her future self, into the finale. When she was heading into that finale with Kenneth Branagh, she already experienced that scene on the vacation in her past life, right? So she knew somebody dove off the boat, and then she knows that the end of the plan is meant for her to dive off the boat. So, so she then knows why doesn't Branagh know? Boat. Why, why doesn't Sator know? Well, Branagh's dead. He's already been killed by her at that moment. So... You know, before she jumps off the boat. So she knows what her... She's on a, a kill this guy mission, right? Or make sure mm-hmm. he's dead at his, after the guy fires the flare in the air. So that, that's the craziest thing. Like, this movie, the race against time part. Oh, you were goodness. talking about the simple Bond movie premise, right? Where there's a race against time. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about, you know, the whole, you know, let's get the doomsday device done and whatever. But Nolan doesn't even make that simple for us no. like it's a in baseball we have what's called the timing play where you know the 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 guy rounding third if he scores before the force out is com- or before the out is completed not a force out if he scores before the out is completed then the run counts mm-hmm. and if he doesn't the run does not count there's like a timing play in this movie that makes no sense to me <laughs> and that's another burning question before we get to the Pattinson question here's the thing like she disobeys the tenant yeah. of the mission, right? She kills him. She's not supposed to kill him. She's supposed to stall him in that moment so that the whole f- double mission at the end, the finale, can happen and they can get that device away from the dead man switch mm-hmm. and save the world. And she gets lucky at the end of the day because, yeah, they get it before she kills him, but it's, like, just before. And how could she know that? She didn't know that. All she is trusting in her mind is that she saw herself dive into the water. So she knows she's on a world-saving mission. Mm-hmm. I guess she knows that she can dive into the water, so she's going to be okay. Follow her instincts. Well, that explanation then would prove as to why she felt justified in doing that. Because ultimately, like, her arc, right. which... I've heard people online kind of contend with this, that she was kind of like a flat character, like she really didn't have an arc. This is a mother who's been emotionally abused, physically abused, tormented to stay inside of a marriage that she no longer wants to be a part of, where she's learning in real time that there's this man who I'm not completely sure of what he does, but what I do know is that he's out to hurt me, he is holding me hostage because I want to leave, he's manipulating my love for my son in order to keep me to stay with him, and also, I just saw a woman leave his boat, I think he's cheating on me, oh my gosh, that woman is me, I think I have a way out, I'm gonna try to kill him before... But she didn't but she want him to win. She convinces herself. She did not yeah, want she him convinces, to win. Oh, and she convinces herself that she wins before she even starts the battle with him at the end. Yeah. So, all right, we got to backtrack a little bit here, folks, because I think the most important concept is the temporal pincer movement. This is a battle strategy in this film where you divide your forces, and the good guys use it and the bad guys use it, but you divide your forces and you have one force going back in time and one force going forward in time. I'm just listen I'm just thinking of Mike One listening to this. He hates this shit. He hates time travel movies. So he's probably happy he's sitting this one out. He's probably rolling his eyes right now. Anyway, we got one force going back in time, we got one force going forward in time. The final battle where they're basically going to set up the doomsday device and blow it and blow up everything once the dead man switch because you have Kenneth Branagh attaching the uh, attaching the detonation device the trigger to himself and he's going to kill himself because he has you know cancer he has he has a well, I forget what you call that terminal cancer mm-hmm. pancreatic inoperable cancer all right so 
essentially you have this battle where you got the red team and the blue team, right? Those are the good guys. 50, min- 50 minutes, they're not interacting. Mm-hmm. And it's the craziest thing I've ever seen at the end of the movie. The first time I was watching it, I didn't get any of it. The second time I was watching it, I was just, my mind was blown. Because you got them overlapping for 10 minutes. 10, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. They overlap for 10 minutes and they communicate to one another on how to beat the bad guys in that final storming of the castle scene. It's the craziest fucking thing and ever. And then seeing them at the culminates... same time, like, how oh. about, like, they're training one another. Like, one, you, you, you get the scope of, like, how big this tenant organization is, right? Like, wow, they have, like, you know, right. hundreds of people committed to this cause, right? And, um, like, tenant, like, that's the entire definition of the word. And seeing yes. actors performing their movements backwards is like jarring like it's it's so weird but like you don't want to get too like you don't want to get too like transfixed on like looking at it because it looks really really odd like seeing people fighting backwards because they oh my gosh they had to be doing it yeah, backwards right there's to, no other way to film that the way that the, you you have to do it like that and that's like the, the 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 practical levels to filming this and with the choreography is like out of this world and like i can only imagine how long this like just it probably took a month just to do this third act battle right i i can't imagine how long that took it's so yeah, intricate. You're, you're totally right but that's like the microcosm of this principle that's temporal pincer movement because we realize like i said at the beginning of the spoiler section that john david washington's future self is the guy who founds tenant he goes back mm-hmm. in time and he founds the whole thing so ultimately this entire movie is a temporal pincer movement. We got future John David Washington going back, and he's going with Robert Pattinson, who's his longtime best buddy, ally, son. We don't know. We're going to talk about that mm. in a second, dude. I <laughs> <laughs> no, love it so much. But then we also have, you know, the present day John David Washington going forward, and the 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 whole thing is this double mission going in opposite directions on the time line and it's crazy watch all the youtube videos folks you'll get the timeline Mm -hmm. for each character some people did some great work out there that's why i'm thinking though like nolan he does things small he does things big and then he's got that guy those guiding principles over his whole movie do you do you buy that the temporal pincer movement is kind of working all these different ways i mean you, you with me on that i think for the sake of the film on the macro yes mm-hmm. on the micro mm-hmm. it's tough to swallow because it's a little bit hard to follow on first watch i think that it starts okay. working for you on the smaller side um with subsequent viewings because you're not so distracted by either character motiva- motivations because they're a little bit unclear like the first time when i watched the film i didn't understand what drove Neil to kind of change the plan. Right. But then again, so we, when I now know, oh, <laughs> he's already seen it, like he's already experienced this, then I understand why, because he was always destined to change the plan. Always. And he knew he knew the entire framework of the thing because he's probably been training for it his whole life, or at least he's been training for it recently. And then that's the thing. Like, There's a point in the movie where John David Washington thinks Neil's the big bad guy, and we think it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a shady you know, well, mf think about the when whole you, movie, When right? you first meet him and they sit next to each other, he's kind of this like slinky British dude. I don't know. Like, are you just like, are you just like a, an information guy? Like, I, I didn't know 
what he was like there to do and then he continues to stay along and like okay so the information guy is also going to try to you know um breach the priya tower and then he's going to keep staying around like oh he has so much bigger importance and i knew that something was up when the first time in at the um when they're going inside of the um oh goodness the, the, the airport right the what do they call that place? Yep. The Fort of oh, Shit. The Rotas. The Rotas, the Rotas building, which is the last <laughs> word in that freaking So great. <laughs> when when yeah. when 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 the protagonist is attacked by the inverted, you know, dude dressed in all black, and they're having mm-hmm. that hallway fight, and you see Robert Patton chase somebody and take off the mask, I thought that that was him on the other side. Because I would have right. I'm sorry, in that moment, I would have no there was nothing that was done cinematically that would lead me to believe that that was actually the protagonist on the other side. I thought when he got it, that it, surprise look, because it was a genuine surprise from him in that moment, that that like it, it almost feel like that something did change. Because if he's already, this has already happened, why was he that surprised at seeing who he saw? That is a moment that encapsulates why I love Christopher Nolan because only someone like him can pull that off and to, to actually relive, to have the balls to just show the scene again and show us exactly oh my gosh. how that happened. It, it, isn't it so time. satisfying as a, as a viewer? Just Ugh. think about all the movies where you like, Oh my God, like that, like that's what you want to deliver. Like that's what separates the, like the, the greats from the goods when, cause it, you have to craft things in a way. And it, it happened about like three or four times in this film where I'm just like, Oh my God, like and this is such a great feeling you see it so often in these thriller movies right where if somebody's too good of a friend if they're too nice mm-hmm. to you they're usually the bad guy and they're gonna turn on you yeah. and nolan uses that setup to set up the fact that neil is not the bad guy which is just brilliant i mean you have neil you think he's too good of a mentor a friend everything and he's accused of being bad or knowing too much by John David Washington at a certain point. And then Nolan literally takes like a 30-minute sequence of going reverse in time to prove that this guy is not only the best friend in the in the movie, but perhaps one of the more hero, uh, heroic characters in the movie. So this is the last burning question for you, Colby. We have that little boy who has sandy blonde hair. We have Robert Pattinson with brown hair in real life. He dyes his hair sandy blonde. Christopher Nolan, when interviewed, I mean, there's great videos on this. When interviewed, Christopher Nolan says, Neil's probably not his real name. It's not his real name. You never know with these spy people. When you reverse the last four letters of Maximilian, it spells Neil. Oh my God, my mind was blown at that. That can't be a coincidence. Yeah, it just it just couldn't be. And when I saw that video, and I think we may have seen the same one, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> because even <laughs> even without doing the deep dive, after my first initial watch, and like I spoke about before, the reveal that Neil gives to the protagonist about their true relationship and that you recruited me and he's walking away and JDW is welling up with tears. Like, And then we I, get to the next scene where... Cat uses the phone given by the protagonist. And we see that lasting interaction between her and her son. And then we see the reverse of the protagonist in the car after he kills Priya. And I'm just like, there's that lingering look that he has at the boy. I'm like, there's something yep. there. And I'm like, that's got to be him. Like, it's just got to be him. Like, it, it has to be. It, it makes too much sense. 
I haven't felt butterflies in my stomach like this about a movie possibility in the longest time. I want this to be so true, Colby. I want a movie where Denzel Washington plays an older John David Washington oh character. He he basically raises John, he goes back in time with Robert Pattinson to basically set up this whole thing because Robert Pattinson is the fixer of this story. Yes. Like he's the one saving, you, you know, present day protagonist at the opera. You see the little thing on his bag. And later on, he's he's the one obviously that red takes string. the bullet. Oh my and gosh. Dies. Oh my God. It's just, it's so wonderful. But you have him being the fixer throughout this plot. He's the one that calls in the cavalry, calls in the tenant forces with Aaron Taylor Johnson to, you know, go at the bad guys once he knows he's clear to do so. Mm-hmm. So we have. We have a character that's like the guardian angel, and we think he was the devil the whole movie, but he's actually the guardian angel. He's, it's proven to us, I want to believe, that John David Washington gets a future with Elizabeth Debicki after all those flirt, flirtations, right? <laughs> she needs a good man in her life. Yeah. And, and, you know, he raises the boy... And then he has to send this boy back in time for some, and he doesn't. I don't know when he puts it together, mm-hmm. but I want to see that on Denzel Washington's face. I mean, I want the, the story so writes bad. itself that the like another adventure could be. Now, granted, I would say this as a studio, I would want to continue with like a second film with John David Washington's lead. But in understanding this right. story, the most sensitive that it would make is that okay, let's go ahead and switch the narrative to where we have you know Robert Pattinson as Neil slash Max. You know, doing this, you know, another heist with bringing Aaron Taylor Johnson and his really cool beard and stuff like that. And there's some <laughs> other threat that they think is the big threat, and it's not the big threat, just like we do in all the Terminator films, right? Like, oh, no, you thought that was it. It's not. <laughs> and it's just like it's something and more. you do that and they're being sent back and then I swear if there's a way that we could find it where like we're inverting and then John David Washington be able to come back in and like you know the same excitement that I got where this you know this supposed film that's going to be able to have Chris Prine and um and um and Chris Hemsworth in the Star Trek films come mm-hmm. together just if they can be able to be in the same movie John David Washington and you know um Denzel Washington in the same film oh. with Nolan I mean like what it would make up all the money that they may, they may miss out on because because of COVID because that movie right there is like it it can be a billion dollars just like because one the last sequel that we got from a Nolan film was you know the Dark Knight Rises and it was mixed you know and kind of like right. and there's reasons as to why like people have to understand like please Dark Knight Rises the movie that we got was not the movie that was intended to be. And that's obviously because of the tragic passing, you know, of, um, you know, of, of, of Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger yep. as a Joker. So, like, um, I think that this would be Nolan's chance to be able to do something really fun with this film as so many possibilities because of time and just work in that movie star thing that I was talking about from the beginning. Like, like, that's what makes blockbusters fun. Like, they don't have to be just amusement park rides with no soul, Right. They can be something so much more. They can be able to have, you know, the um, the heart and the majesty and like, you know, the, the the prestige of like a an A24 or, you know, or an Annapurna film, you know, but mixed in yeah. with the spectacle of a Disney and a Warner Brothers movie. Like, that's what we have. And, and, you know, just getting all of that, exploring that theory, I don't think that Nolan would ever confirm. He will never, ever no, confirm. <laughs> um, but I think that's what also adds to the mystery of what makes this movie special. And, and to be fair, like you and I would probably be surprised if we saw uh, a tenant, you know, sequel mm-hmm. being greenlit with Christopher Nolan attached at the end of the day. But look, if I can't get 
if I can't get Denzel and John David both nominated in lead actor, I want that movie. I demand that movie, especially after this shitty-ass year. All right, <laughs> we've kind of hit on most of the best scenes. I know we've been all over the place today, but I, I kind of want to mention like two more, maybe three more. Dude, I love the heist scene when they basically used all those trucks to just like oh, hammer yeah. that you know kind armored box, truck in the box middle. Them in. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Another of the coolest thing. Here, here's the Chris Farley show portion of this episode, folks. But the, another of the coolest thing ever. You remember when the opera happens and that first gunshot goes off? I mean, you must have jumped in your oh, seat, absolutely. right, with the Dolby Digital. Yes. That sequence, that sequence was the craziest intro I've seen since really The Dark Knight. Yeah. I just thought that was a masterful way to start this thing. And for it to end in such gruesome fa- fashion Ooh. with, you know, John David Washington being tortured, like, that's why I think I want to second guess some things in this movie, too. I know I was going to rip off some best scenes, but I think Martin Donovan is kind of bullshitting the protagonist in that scene on the boat where he's saying, you know, this was all a test. There's no way that guy pulling out his teeth <laughs> was working for the good guys. There's no way. Well, one, it, it would then kind of, what I would need to understand was, what was the initial job that was being done in the first place? Like, one, if if the bad guys from the future mm-hmm. gave instructions to Sator and his men because one of the whole cruxes, as I'm going to call them, <laughs> one of the whole cruxes were inside <laughs> of the opera house, right? And they had to get the infinity it. Infinity stones, yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> pretty much, right? Um, wh- how did <laughs> it's, it's trying to figure out because we know that okay, we have good guys and bad guys from the future. So future protagonist yep. knows that that's where. Like, why is that point what sets in motion from him discovering Tenet? That's what. Here's my th- mm. all right. Here's my theory. Well, I think that. John David Washington knows he gets tortured by this Russian side unit that's playing another game, right? Like, that's another spy unit. I don't know if they're working for Branagh or not. But basically, he knows he gets tortured. He knows he gets his teeth pulled out. But I think he makes sure that his organization, Tenant, is the one to pick him up. And maybe that guy who gives the fake suicide pill is from Tenant as well. So his partner in the mission is also from Tenant. That's what I, Again, that's, that's what future. Yeah. Yeah, future be John connected. David Washington looks out for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. couldn't be connected because, one, we kept getting shots from inside of one of the private rooms from, like, a Russian, you know, dignitary or, like, some military guy. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that doesn't – because it, it never came back up again. And I was like, ah, th- I think, yeah, I think I think Marnon was being bullshit. And I also thought that he was going to be in more of the movie. Um, I guess he's just, ah, no, just there. Like, that's it. Same thing with Michael Caine. I thought he was going to be in more of the movie. No, I'll oh, just write right. it. Okay. I can't even do, I can't even do his, his weird mumbling. Um, Michael Caine. Yeah. yeah. I it's thought they were going to use, yeah, I thought they were going to use the word tenant more in the movie. And they use it like twice. <laughs> It was like, I was like, okay. Like, I thought like Tenet was going to be like adjustment bureau. Like I have to say this word and now like I get mm-hmm. to wield, like I myself get to inform, in, in, you know, in, inform the inversion. Like I thought it was going to be like a kind of like, remember Wanted with, um, yeah. uh, with Morgan Freeman? Like, oh, so because I'm seeing the bullets inverting, like saying the word Tenet is what activates the inversion. And maybe they use like some kind of like minority report gloves and they control the, like honestly on a level of sci-fi and an action movie, if they could be able to use the inversion themselves without needing the turnstiles, that would have added a, 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 an element of like just even more intrigue that would have been pretty cool as opposed to actually going in time themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But I like this route too. Like I'll take it anyway. 
in case no one listens to this podcast. So. <laughs> I think, you know, I kind of had a big list, but we kind of mentioned everything from that big list here. The, the last thing I wanted to mention in terms of the best was like that, the bungee cord thing. Oh my God. How was I that just, shot? I, like, so <laughs> was that really them? It feel it felt like it was really them. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen, yeah. the, especially how they got out of that whole situation where they oh used the, the extra coils on their back to get down. Yeah. Oh my God. And talk about the spy shit with the gesture, the tenant gesture mm-hmm. and the word, how he uses it in that scene where it's on the bottom of his gun, yep. where he puts his two hands together. Oh, it's just brilliant. So, I mean, this movie's got a lot of goodies like that. Do you have any more bests, any more worst you want to talk I about mean, that I'm forgetting? You know here? what? Um, as much as the broccoli family has control over, um, you know, the, the, the property for what's going to happen next <laughs> with, uh, yep. you know, with 007. <laughs> and, I, and it's crazy to think that we're getting a 007 movie like in a couple of months. Um, this shows me that Idris Elba, John David Washington, any other black actor or black actress can easily play Bond because with what mm-hmm. JDW does, that kitchen fight scene, I'm just like, my dude hit him in the neck with a uh. cheese grater and walked it off like it was nothing. Like he took a it stack was- of plates bashed it over his head and just like kept what like and then the way he pops out the restaurant just like fixes his oh. his blazer and elizabeth de becky's like i guess they didn't do a good job <laughs> it is so I, cool oh man i was so hyped up i was so like i would have walked into that kitchen and tried to fight after watching him fight it i would try to fight it that way i would get my ass kicked but i was that hyped yeah. up in that walking away and like what you said brilliant. you said earlier describing like that's what lends to his performance the fact that he's an athlete he can sell you on the and he did all of his own choreography for the most part is what i heard you know and like seeing those little videos on how they choreographed him having to fight backwards and see, because like, mm-hmm. remember the first time where the guy's on the ground all in black and it's like that weird kind of, <laughs> like he did that himself. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the camera being sped up to do like, no, he's on the floor forcing a reverse movement to mimic what it would look like on the other perspective of going backwards. You know what it is? It's a strong core. And unfortunately, my co-host does not have that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's all in the core. All right in the there. core, man. Oh gosh, it's this movie. Like I'm so excited to go out and watch it. You know, one, two, as many times as I can. And for those, like you know, we're, we're, you know, like I said, you said it before. Like we're gonna give a recommendation to watch it. Um, but like in light mm-hmm. of these times, like we don't want to take that lightly. Um, like you know, just like go with like what your heart and your head tells you. Like be responsible to yourself and those that are around you as well. Um, yeah. so like, like I'm going to, like, like I said, I know my routine and I know when I go like exactly the, the best thing that I can be able to do to feel safe and feel safe for the people that are around me. Cause I really limit my, my interaction. So I'm excited to go watch it again. Um, there's, I think there's so much more to parse from this film and I cannot wait to Definitely. listen to more podcasts on it either. Um, and get people other takes. And I'm glad that we have a film that we as a community can like, cause unfortunately not too many other films that have come out in 2020 have fostered the need for this type of discussion. Exactly. That's why this is so necessary and so welcome at this moment. I I, I had a blast doing this with you, Colby. Thank you again. I guess, uh, you know, you put you put your score in terms of your grades out of a 10 scale uh we do kind of the letter grade thing i'm an a minus i was a b plus after my first watch 88 i'm now an a minus 91 after my second watch you have a grade already did i talk you up any further do you want to tease people or do you want to tell them what your grade was on your review yeah on my first my first watch i was an eight out of ten 
And I felt mm-hmm. like I was at a low eight out of 10 only because there was things that I didn't understand. And like, that's what my first initial impression was. Um, but honestly, like as I've watched it for a halftime and I've done more deep dives and having this conversation with you, like, yo, your, your a, what would be my, my nine out of 10? Like, that's it. Right. Like just, if you break down those major components of like how I dissect the film, the direction, the writing, the performances, the technicals in regards to the cinematography, the score. Like, like there's only a couple like really big knocks that I can give it. People that I hear knocking the screenplay, I think they're really getting stuck on what quote unquote the convolutedness of the plot. It's a superhero spy movie plot. If you look at it from the macro, it's very simple mm-hmm. when you really do think about it. The complexities come in with understanding the time and as a viewer, you're supposed to be not completely sure of what's going on. I think that's done intentionally. Um, So I feel good at bumping up my score to a 9 out of 10, or in this case, an A. Love it. Love it. Because, yeah, I'm with you. Because, you know, you you watch it once, and I do think, you know, people's opinions are valid out there Mm -hmm. where, you know, all right, first watch wasn't great. It's frustrating. You got to take that into consideration. But if it holds up under scrutiny and if it's this much effing fun to talk about that's got to raise your grade so i'm with you man i really appreciate that and uh it, it makes me feel good that you you love this movie even more after me loving this movie talking with you that, that, that's why we do this we're just having so much fun so one more time colby you know maybe tease some of your upcoming work what do you got going on what are you doing at colbytoldme.com the podcast the handle all of it yeah man i mean coming back to social media and podcasting after you know a almost two month i hate is, has been great um, my DMs have been opened up. I think people are excited to kind of, you know, see me back in the space. I'm always appreciative of it. Thank you very much for having me on. I got a couple other guest spots um, with your boy, Andrew, from the Nomcast. We're going to be doing Love nice. Guaranteed uh, with Rachel Lee Cook. Okay. Oh, I can't wait for that. And Damon <laughs> Waynes Jr. So that'll be exciting. Um, a guest spot that I got coming up next week and a couple other guest spots. Just be on the lookout for me. Follow your boy. I'm on all the socials at Kobe told me, uh, especially on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'll get back to my podcast let you guys in on what i've been doing my time off a little bit the colby told me podcast please uh rate subscribe review and all that good stuff and do so too from your boys from the mike mike and oscar and when i'm in the mood to write <laughs> you can check out my website at com. so when they ask you where you heard it from you tell them colby told me that's that's great we're so glad you're back man i mean we we missed you it was it was like so dark without <laughs> you know the the colby mac dms in, in our feed there too so i mean it's just i i'm glad to see you back i'm glad to see you having fun again with this le- and with us so we'll have yeah. to get you back on here as for mike mike and oscar we're at mm and oscar a n d oscar on twitter otherwise we're mike mike and oscar on facebook instagram instagram reddit and gmail uh we've got mulan next up for you guys so stay tuned for that otherwise you know colby you're the best this was so much fun thank you again And, uh, yeah, we'll see all you guys next time.